Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Specifically in relation to flying, it will fly in a non-saber form first. Yeah? Right. So we'll see it on platforms like sustainable aviation platforms, fuel cell cooling being a prime example. And then uh, slightly beyond that, we'll see it in a, in a hypersonic air vehicle. We'll blend that cooler technology with uh, an advanced jet engine to enable, you know, for want of a better description, a super fast jet engine. <laughs> so they, can, they can punch through the heat barrier and get you to, to hypersonic speeds in a, in a relatively near terms. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson and welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Today I'm joined by Tim Robinson, Editor-in-Chief of Aerospace Magazine at the Royal Aeronautical Society. Tim, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks. Yep, good to be here again. Yep, good to be back. Um, we've got an exciting episode today talking about one of the most exciting UK aerospace stories in recent times, Tim. We certainly have, yes. So uh, we are absolutely thrilled to have on Extended uh, today as our special guest, Mark Thomas, uh, CEO of possibly, oh, I don't know, the most exci- one of the most expi- exciting aerospace companies in the world at the moment, Reaction Engines who are pushing the boundaries of engine technology and also seeing far wider potential applications for its technology than perhaps first when it first started. Uh, Mark, a warm welcome to Extended. Brilliant. Fantastic to be here. What a great introduction. Thank you. Yeah, nice to have you on. So starting from uh, the very beginning then, uh, for, for anyone who's been living on a rock or living on Mars, who are reaction engines? When were you formed? How many people work for you? Where, where are you based? Yeah, great. So Reaction Engines is a well, great British uh, technology business. So a private uh, British company founded in 1989 by three engineers, ex-Rolls-Royce, uh, founded to develop really revolutionary space propulsion technology to enable a, a generational change in how you access space. Uh, and it's grown rapidly since then. And we've uh, got involved in lots of other exciting business areas. Uh, and I stepped on board in 2015. Um, and between 2015 and today, we've grown from about 50 people to nearly 300 people uh, based here in the UK and also in Denver in the US. And, and what are, what are the, the, the some of the biggest milestones that Reaction Engines has, 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 has achieved in, in sort of recently? So we really pride ourselves on taking a very experiment, experimental approach. We, we love technology demonstration and we love uh, trialing uh, new technologies, seeing what they can do, learning through successes and failures. Uh, probably our biggest accomplishment, in the, certainly in the time I've been here, is around our pre-cooler technology, which is a really novel technology that enables you to 
break through the heat barrier associated with very high supersonic or hypersonic flight and ultimately take a, a new propulsion system to space. We've demonstrated that both to cryogenic levels, so uh, sub-sub-zero, but also to the most extreme high temperatures, you know, temperatures equivalent to molten lava um, flowing through our pre-cooler and being uh, quenched instantaneously so equivalent to hypersonic speeds of mach five and a half or or, or above wow okay so so this this, this pre-cooler obviously for people who aren't aware of it that, that is part of the the revolutionary saber engine that is uh, I, I suppose you uh, describe it as an air breathing rock engine can you, can you explain a bit more on, on how that works and how innovative it is yeah, so that's the perfect description, in fact. Uh, yeah, air-breathing air breathing rocket engine. So a hybrid between jet and rocket technologies. So the theory being, if you can use atmospheric air as an oxidizer, you can need to carry less oxidizer on board your launcher. It makes for a smaller, lighter launcher with more payload capability and the ability to engineer additional features like wings and undercarriage. About 95% plus of a conventional launcher is is fuel and oxidant and the and the oxidizer liquid oxygen typically is uh is the heaviest contact you know heaviest relatively uh, uh, relative part of that that rocket system so if you're going to eliminate your or reduce your reliance on onboard oxidizer you have a far more capable versatile and uh, a more flexible vehicle so so the theory was you develop an engine that captures atmospheric air uses it as an oxidizer for a portion of the flight to orbit and then switches to a conventional rocket mode beyond that point to get you, you know, the final push into orbit, but do that all within one propulsion system. So it's a, a hybrid or combined cycle engine, uh, which involves lots of uh, interesting fluid transfers between hydrogen, air, and helium. So. Okay, and the, the, obviously you want to keep the uh, the the the, uh, the secret source still secret, but uh, the pre cooler <laughs> works, and the, there's some amazing stat, isn't there, about how how quickly it can cool uh, incoming air down that's, that's that's coming very very fast, very, yeah, very yeah. hot, and it just cools it extremely quickly. Yeah, somehow. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, somehow. <laughs> so the somehow, the somehow is done by using thousands of micro tubes. So very small tubes about the dimensions of hypodermic needles, wow. you know, packed pack, pack together into a, into a, a particular design arrangement that we've engineered and is proprietary. But it gives you a huge amount of surface area to play with. Those tubes have coolant running around inside them. And the temperatures we're talking about, yeah, cooling from above a thousand degrees centigrade to zero or sub-zero in less than a blink of an eye. So you wow. several several megawatts of heat transfer in devices that you can hold within your arms. You know, so it's it's really impressive stuff, and it's it is the breakthrough technology with without doubt. It's a thing of most extreme interest and uh, and, and versatility, really. So, so where, whereabouts uh, whereabouts are we with with, with Saber and the, the precooler? So you've you've done ground tests, but it's not flown yet. Uh, whereabouts? How far away might we be from a, a first flight or, or getting it into the air? So that's a great question. So we've done lots of testing on the subsystem technologies within a Sabre engine. So every, all the various uh, novel technologies that are required to to bring that to fruition, 
from you know, high, different types of heat exchangers to hydrogen combustion systems and uh, novel control systems and, and, and other aspects of the engine, including rocket nozzles uh, and some of the uh, the supporting assemblies and systems. But but the cooler itself is is a very well developed and proven technology. It really is. You know, beyond TRL6, because we actually have engineered products from that technology that are in service, uh, specifically in relation to flying. It will fly in a non-Sabre form first. You know? right. So we'll see it on uh, platforms like sustainable aviation platforms, uh, fuel cell cooling being a prime example. And then uh, slightly beyond that, we'll see it in a, in a hypersonic air vehicle. Uh, right. So we'll blend we'll blend that cooler technology with with uh, an advanced jet engine to enable, you know, for want of a better description, a super fast jet engine. <laughs> so they can they can punch through the heat barrier and get you to to hypersonic speeds in a in a relatively near term. So. Wow. Okay. So you've touched a little bit on that as well, but I, one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating is that the reaction engines now is much more than space plane hypersonics, uh, Skylon that we, 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 you know, people are probably familiar with. And that, that it's now spinning off into, uh, you know, the sustainable electric aviation, zero emission, because heat there is a big problem, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, every, everywhere you look, in fact, heat is a problem. I mean, it's a, a, a world of challenge slash opportunity. And I think really what's emerged in the time I've been in the company is, is the real net zero imperative and everything we look at we can see an application for our technology so it's really space technology that's being engineered for nearer term applications here on earth but with a a very strong sustainability focus so so the fuel cell cooling just as an example um yeah we're taking uh existing aircraft we're working in partnership with an airframer uh to to remove the internal combustion engines, replace them with fuel cell power packs, uh, which is great because that's a, a clean uh, propulsion system that only produces water uh, as a product. Um, but it produces as much heat as it does usable energy. So you have to do something about the heat. And that's where we step in with our technology to really efficiently and effectively manage that heat problem for the airframer and then ultimately for the customer. Yeah. Right, but there's there's also uh, a wider applications on the ground, isn't it? I mean, you, you guys are involved yep. in F one and also battery. Uh, and I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, battery dividers or battery coolers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, well, well, so yeah, on the F one, we, we, we're producing a product for the Formula One industry, which is a, an intercooler. So it's, it's uh, sits between the turbocharger and the engine. It does a, a, a significant amount of cooling, again, near instantaneously. It's a really nice uh, product. It allows you to look at the, the overall system architecture of the car in a different way, combine uh, different cooling solutions into a single device. It's very small, you know, compact, but, but just just award-winning you know, uh, technology product. Um, uh, yeah, and then in the, on the electric vehicle side, we have a battery cooling technology that uh, is really exciting and uh, simplistically enables you to put a very effective cooling system between the cells in a battery pack and keep those nicely conditioned regardless of the duty or the threat environment that that battery is, is subjected to so so you know that has a really big market potential and um it will be needed in you know millions or if not billions of units at some point 
It could also, I, I understand, also believed to be used in, in kind of ground, uh, in a kind of power stations, and also in in commercial aviation. If you if you put a, you know yep. again cooling that, that that air down, making the the engines more efficient. Yeah, so I think that absolutely. Yeah. So uh, uh, yeah, definitely see opportunities in existing devices for the technology. So how do you make jet engines more efficient? Uh, so work in. We work in partnership with Rolls-Royce. They're, they've been an investor in the business for many years, but we work together on some of those next-generation aero engines. Um, and then, yeah, on the ground in energy plant or industrial processes, we can see multiple places where you can go, again, after heat as a problem and turn it into an opportunity. You can take that heat, capture it, and use it to generate useful power, electricity. Wow. Okay. And all this from a you know a hypersonic space plane engine. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. Yeah, I think. Well, I think. I think that's a really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting thread because actually, what we got very good at by um, trying to engineer that really out there product, you know, that Saber engine, was we got really good at making things small, lightweight, and extremely high performance. But we also got a great understanding of thermodynamics. How do you move energy around? How do you move heat around? Uh, how do you generate very efficient machines, uh, turbine machinery and such like, um, uh, because you need to to get to space. But then when we looked at some of the challenges here on Earth, we thought, yeah, those are very addressable and very very appealing. So, so yeah, we're trying to sort of dial up some of those commercial aspects of the business, but without losing that overall ambition and passion to be part of something really big one day you know, in the space sector. Yeah. Okay. I mean, from from you know from Mach five, uh, so space planes to to you know the Britain Norman Islander, you know cruise yeah. speed about I don't know ninety knots, hundred knots. Um, how, how did you how did you get involved in that in the first place? I mean, did did you go to to Cranfield Aerospace, uh, or did they come looking for you for the for the for the heat exchanger? Yeah, so on that, we've had a long-standing relationship with Cranfield Aerospace. We 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 we, we see ourselves as being very similar in terms of. You know, size of company, some of the, the journey we've been on, some of the things we do and we're excited about. But th- in that particular instance, yeah, they came to us for a cooling solution. It was going to be very challenging to engineer that system change without a more advanced fuel cell cooling solution. And and uh, really, I think, you know, I'll be honest, I think we are the only game in town in, in that sense. So it's a, a great, great position to be in, but working very much in partnership and it's Cranfield Aerospace's program, and we're one of their suppliers, uh, and delighted to be on board. You're really totally behind that revolution in air transport, and we see so many possibilities. I mean, to be an aircraft designer at this point in time, I mean, apart from the 1950s, there's perhaps no more exciting period to be involved in aircraft design when you look at everything that's going on. And is that is that opening the doors now to other people with hybrid electric uh, systems, hydrogen fuel cell systems to to now go? Oh, hang on, I, I I've got a similar problem here. How do I? Oh, ooh, reaction yes. engines. Yeah. Didn't really think of them before. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's right. We were a well kept secret, and I think now we're a slightly less well kept secret than than we do have people knocking on the doors, which is helpful. It doesn't mean we have to be out there hunting all the time for business we do we have actually established a reputation and a, a brand of interest and uh, particularly in that space and we've been much more public about our ambition to be uh, an enabler for sustainable aviation particularly but more broadly you know behind the net zero imperative and making sure that we can uh, see that as a big part of our, our business offering 
Okay. And, and in terms of the, the – where, where do you see the biggest near-term and the, the long-term application for, for Sabre technology? Obviously, electric vehicles, batteries, that, that's huge. You've got the you've got, you know, hydrogen fuel cells, maybe for EV tools or, or hybrid electric, but um, lower-cost space access, um, you know, that, that yeah. could be potentially huge as well. Yeah, so certainly looking out into the future, I, th- I think uh, we, we had – multiple uh, studies done uh, several years ago independently by NASA, European Space Agency, defense agencies, industry players that said, you know, low cost, you know, reusable access to space was, you know, we had to do it. We just had to do it. It made complete sense. And if you could get the frequency of operations to a high enough level, you could really drive down the cost to very, very low numbers and uh, almost became agnostic to the payload because the, the, the cost of launch was going to be so low and so so frequent. Uh, and and uh, you know, it's accumulated interest from commercial customers with satellite launch, obviously, but also uh, defense customers who want that and value that responsiveness and resilience piece. So, so you know, we were still on that path. We, we see, you know, as everyone else does, lots of very interesting things happening in that sector. And, and there is no doubt that reusability is, is on the agenda and is, uh, yeah, we continue to track in a very helpful direction. But, um, but our technology is really aimed at a future generation. You know, so, and I think that really goes hand in hand with you know, the new space economy really opening up. You know, it's, it's, it's more than satellite launches. Yeah, yeah. It's in-space manufacturing. It's space-based solar power. It's debris removal, something that requires you to have a you know, really frequent shuttle service to and from orbit, you know, moving infrastructure around and uh, and making that as accessible as possible. And that's what we're kind of pointing at, really. So, but in the meantime, we've got stuff to do, and particularly around the hypersonics piece, which is, you know, has gone from being a subject that was talked about in a very small society to something that's now publicly very well-known as a result of, obviously, the conflict in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, can you provide an update? So, there's a couple of things there to to, to ask about. There's, there's a hypersonic project for the RAF and the Rapid Capabilities Office that was announced in 2019, mm-hmm. uh, and then last year there was there was a very interesting shape that was unveiled at Barbara <laughs> Hypersonic Air Vehicle Experimental Concept. I mean, it looked it looked like Batman's aircraft. Uh, <laughs> if, if Batman had a, a hypersonic, that, that was between you yourselves. Uh, REF again and DSTL. So, can you can you give us any update, or what is it a case of you, I can tell you, but I don't have to kill you? <laughs> yeah, so, well, yeah. So many aspects of that particular project are classified, but what I can tell you is it's absolutely full on at the moment. So we're right. full steam, full steam ahead. We're in active testing on the ground now of aspects of the propulsion system that will power that vehicle. Um, so what we released was a conceptual vehicle. What's actually being worked is even more exciting, I should say. So, it's, uh, so, so when, if, when that does get a reveal, I think it will, it will blow people out of their seats. It's, it's a fantastic project. We're absolutely delighted to be working with RCO, DSTL, and our partner Rolls-Royce on the propulsion system for that. And it's one team working really effectively and it's ramping up all, all the time so you know we've, we've just completed some testing last week and we'll be into the next series of testing within one to two months time so. wow and that, that's so important because obviously um you know as you say the war in ukraine has, has, has highlighted this but also you've got u.s hypersonic projects you've got russian hypersonic projects you've got chinese hypersonic mm. projects so it's really 
the UK joining this hypersonic race, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. No, exactly right. It absolutely is joining the race and going about things in a in a in a more create in a creative way, you know. So so it's not a we're not pursuing uh, a silver bullet solution that's a, a you know, very a very high end you know capability that's exclusive and uh, it's something that's extremely versatile, flexible. You know, reusable system that can be produced in in large numbers and right. provide a very 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 useful capability. So, so I think we've hit on something uh, I would say uniquely interesting, and uh, you know, it's great. It's a great privilege to be leading that project as we are we are leading it on behalf of the industry players. But, wow, where might that fly? They don't well, I, I, I really would. We want to get flying within within five years of project launch. So we are actually in that window now and and tracking in that direction so so I, I think that's the intent is really to be in flight uh within five years so. wow did you know that the rp3 rocket projectile used to great effect by hawker typhoons in the tank busting ground attack role was originally conceived as an air-to-air weapon to attack luftwaffe bomber streams did you also know that in the 1950s an indigenous light aircraft built in the Philippines was skinned with woven bamboo matting. If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal, print and digital, that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. Moving on to sort of space access, you've talked about the frequency. Uh, so Skylon, people are, people are, are, are familiar with this, the Skylon reusable uh, space plane. Uh, that's got a little bit quieter. Uh, so, you know, you were talking about kind of frequency. Do you need, do you need some sort of, um, you know, kind of killer app like a mega constellation or – because that, that's – to me, that's how – um, you know, kind of SpaceX is is getting mm-hmm. that frequency up. Is there, there, there's something up there that needs to be put up there? You know, lots and lots of satellites. Um, all right, mm-hmm. we, we need a fleet of we need a fleet of rockets. Uh, so, could solar power in space or space debris mm-hmm. removal potentially provide that demand? You know, um, and, and also, I suppose, would how costly would it be? How how big a fleet of Skylons or space planes, next gen space planes, would you need? Mm. Well, that's a great question. So Skylon, uh, I guess just a baseline, uh, those that aren't tracking that one closely, was a very high-end single-stage orbit launcher, so a, a large payload launcher, 15, 15 tons to low-Earth orbit, but in a fully reusable configuration. So, uh, and, and that was the pursuit of the company uh, from, from early days off the back of the Hotel project, which was yeah. uh, you know, similarly ambitious. Um, and we've developed lots of the technology as a result of going for that very high bar um, uh, kind of um, system. Uh, what's more likely is something that's a two-stage to, or two-stage to orbit system. So you'd still have a very capable uh, and reusable, fully reusable first-stage launcher that could well operate um, in a horizontal takeoff and landing configuration. But you'd have a, a more an expendable or, or less reusable upper stage that did the the final push to orbit so we can we simplistically we study all those systems and every variation 
in between. But uh, but what we're trying to do at the moment is plot the pathway between the hypersonic system and some of those future launch systems. I think we can absolutely see the the, the market opportunity. We can see the utility. We can see the the the, the cost of launch benefits and the uh, and the responsiveness and resilience benefits. But we have to have a a, a, a pragmatic and credible roadmap or pathway to get there. And some of those things you you, you mentioned are very helpful. Without doubt, you know, space yeah. solar is space solar is gaining traction. Space debris removal is is an imperative, and uh, they they do build help us build the business case. Yeah, you know, very very usefully help us build that business case beyond beyond satellites, of which there is still a big big uh, supply demand equation to be solved there. You know, so, so and, and the the two stage, I mean, the two stage to, to orbit is a bit like the the, the some of the concepts from the from the nineteen fifties, isn't it? That uh, you know you might might sort of see back in the in the US was looking at where they, you know, basically put some kind of. Uh, uh, XB seventy on steroids, and that would that would launch something else off, and yeah. and, 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 and yeah. away you go. Yeah, so that's a neat description. I mean, uh, uh, that's a great image. Seriously, in fact, I've got an XB seventy on my desk, and I do take inspiration from that. So, <laughs> uh, so it's a great, great, great for the engines business. There's a lot of engines on that aircraft, but there uh, is, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it's that conceptually that that's about it. You want something that can operate from a spaceport uh, as frequently as possible. Um, with a go to a high enough altitude and a high enough speed that that second stage becomes fairly cheap uh cheap to operate um and I think we will see these things happening it's it's just a generational shift and the approach we're taking is is generational as well the first system to be deployed will not be fully capable but it would provide a useful enough capability to create that virtuous circle and uh, and trigger more capable systems and uh, yeah i think everything that's happened in terms of disruption in the space sector has been helpful in that sense and has opened up that market to new players and that opportunity to to new technology right and i'm presuming obviously you you, you need an airframer as well you wouldn't be building the the the, the, the vehicle so you'd need uh, some oem uh, with with that sort of like uh, you know knowledge experience skills to, to come yeah. in and, and build that for you how how's that going is is that something that the airframers are are, are looking at you've been in discussions with or we, we have historically worked with a number of them and um from the kind of more classic aerospace sector and also from the space side of the line and uh, we've always had a good relationship with people at that prime level you look at some of our our, our backers you know it inc- includes ba systems it includes boeing Includes Rolls Royce, you know, so that's all showing that there's a there's a very real relevance to the technology in terms of their current and their future plans, and that if we ever needed to build that partnership, we'd have a pretty good place to start. Um, but we're learning a lot ourselves. In truth, we've done, you know, we've got very capable design and modeling and simulation uh, uh, skills in the business. We have uh, an understanding of materials, technology, understanding of aerodynamics, thermodynamics. And in the context of the hypersonics project, yeah, we're leading the overall project, including the vehicles. So, so for sure, we're going to bring people on board who understand uh, the specific aspects of how you do that, that vehicle development and, and proving and certification. But to be in that position as prime gives us a, a tremendous amount of, of, of oversight and, and understanding. And, if, uh, and that's very helpful to some of those, those future plans. 
Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I'm just interested actually in on terms of obviously hypersonics for military applications is 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 a you know a very hot topic at the moment, uh, pun intended. But also, uh, people are looking now for high speed flight for civil, uh, you know, applications, mm-hmm. supersonic flight, hypersonic, you know, passenger travel and things like that. So, um, any interest in that? Have, have Boom been on the on the phone to you asking, <laughs> can you do as an engine for overture? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, yeah, um, we, I think we did some of the earliest, the earliest known studies, uh, published studies in terms of hypersonic air travel, commercial air travel. It's obviously you know, hugely uh, challenging. You know, it, it can be done. You know, the tech, tech, you know, technology uh, you know, is, is, is developing that makes that, that possible. Would you need to, and is it economically viable? Is is, is really the key, really the key questions. And and uh, and and with and with supersonics, there is a real tipping point. There's a there's a point at which you can you can do the job with a conventional propulsion system, and, a, yeah. and then you tip into a territory where you need something that's more advanced that would be more aligned with our technology and some of those saber type concepts. And yeah, most. Yeah, there's been a number of players in that field. There's now fewer players, you know, exploring supersonic uh, business jets. You mentioned, you know, one of the key ones there. And I think they're just staying just the right side of the line to avoid having to go for some very, very um, much more advanced propulsion systems. And uh, that feels like a sensible thing for them to be doing, considering all the other challenges involved in bringing that type of a vehicle together. But if they wanted to go faster, which I think, you know, does make sense uh, uh, down the road, then 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 really we you know they should be talking to us for sure. So, <laughs> so, 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 so thinking about the, the wider competition and the kind of global sort of like uh, global sort of a space, uh, well, global sort of like you know market space. You you guys have also got a US division or US uh, endeavor. In, in How, how's that sort of structured? What's the international interest? And and I, I think crucially for. Uh, you know, some of our some of our, our, our UK listeners might sort of say, "Oh, oh, I hope this I hope this technology is stays in the UK, is being yeah. developed by a British a British company, yeah. and and Britain gets the benefit of it, and doesn't get one of those things where uh, invented in Britain, somebody else perfects it and makes yeah. money out of it." Yeah, yes, exactly. So, so we we went into that absolutely with our eyes open and uh, you know completely aware of that risk and concern. So, what we have at the moment is a is a fully owned U.S. subsidiary of the British company. So that operates out of Denver, um, and we've got all of the protocols and arrangements in place to enable us to work together. But all the technology development is done here in the UK. So it's UK technology you know, designed, made assembled, uh, instrumented, and then if we need to do testing in the U.S. or integrate it into a U.S. system, then we export it over to the U.S. and we you know, most times export it back again at the end of that test campaign. And it works really well. I mean, the, the whole arrangement works really well. So we get our technology showcased in front of U.S. customers and U.S. government and get them. Uh, we can play into U.S. systems. Um, but we work some of the more proprietary aspects from back here in, in the UK. And the, the simple analogy I was given once upon a time is, you know, you, you, it's like buying a ticket to a Formula One race. You can go to the race, you can sit in the stands, you can take your own stopwatch, you can measure the speed of the cars, but you can't actually get inside the car and have a look at what's going on. You know, so, so, and that's, so, so, so. so it's kind of ITAR in reverse then. 
Yes, and ITAR is very, yes, exactly. And ITAR is very much on our minds in the ever sense. Yeah, the, the anything that comes back the other way, obviously, because the technology we're developing is intended also for commercial applications. Then, as long as we can stay ITAR free, then that's a good, good, good thing generally. But we recognise, particularly with some of the work we're doing with the US government and US Air Force, that that will become ITAR at some point, and we have to be able to manage that that scenario and situation that's some great export control people in the business and it's although it's an you know for a private business that might be regarded as, a, as an overhead it absolutely pays back time and time again <laughs> so, so. But I, mean, that, I mean that's really interesting because it, it could, this could be the uh you know you think of of, of well, i mean you can count on the the, the fingers of your hand i think it's sort of like you know uk mm-hmm. UK aerospace, successful UK aerospace successes in the US, you know, Canberra, Harrier. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's basically, good, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, uh, yeah something, if, it, if it's something that, it, you know, that you, you, can, you can sell over to the US, it must be good. Yeah, definitely. And something we did just to really emphasize that we're prepared to do things differently. And we built our own test facility in, in Colorado. So we, we wanted to prove our technology at hypersonic temperatures you know run full mission profiles that the you know darpa and us air force and mod would say that that is an absolute as close as you can get to flying the thing for real and we and we built our own test facility it's an amazing facility absolutely incredible it's a high temperature test facility that uses military jet engines to provide the the hot the hot gas or air that we then flow through our heat exchangers and we can run for 30 or 40 minute durations at sustained high temperatures um and again it's as close as close as you can get uh, to flying the thing on the ground it, it, the tech, as far as the technology knows it's been on a hypersonic mission and come back again so brilliant um so i mean for, for a um you know all this sort of high-tech stuff you, you guys are right on the the bleeding edge of aerospace technology where do you recruit from are there any challenges in getting the right caliber of engineers and scientists uh, are you having to to wade through hundreds and hundreds and thousands of cvs to get the right people or um, yeah, we, we, we are um, having to wade through hundreds and thousands of CVs. So that, that's kind of a nice, nice problem to have in a way because it does mean we get to really pick the best of the best, and we, and we recruit from from everywhere. I mean, if I take the sector kind of spread, it's it's everything from aerospace and defence through to automotive and energy and medical industry and gaming industry. It's just creating right. a blend blend of people who think differently you know, can work together in. Uh, diverse teams and uh, have have you know more a more creative side to their to their um, skill sets you know so it's uh, and uh, and it's a pretty young business I mean uh, you know even if I include myself I mean the average age of the business uh, and I'm a long way north of this the average age is about thirty wow. so it's it, it's something that you might expect to find over in Silicon Valley rather than Oxfordshire in the UK but it's certainly recognised as one of the the key you know, British innovators and and we're in a uh, a part of the UK, which which uh, means we can access some some quite brilliant people, you know, extremely talented. And uh, uh, as an example, we're right in the middle of you know, Formula One country, so we you know there's there's a, obviously a very high skill set there and a, a great caliber of people that c- can join from that industry. But um, but it's yeah, it's it's, it's a yeah, we keep a very close eye on talent. We work very hard at it. But I think we're, you know, we've done, we've been very successful. And I say, in the time I've been here, grown from about fifty people to nearly three hundred. Um, uh, it's not been too difficult to do that. So. 
So are you, are you now kind of visible at the, the level of universities and colleges where students are looking around, they're looking around, they're going, well, what, what is there to work on? Could work Airbus, could be Airbus systems. Ooh, reaction engines. Yeah. Uh, and you're, you're getting unsolicited CVs sent your way now that, that, that people are just, you, you, you're that well known now. Yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, our graduates are absolutely top drawer and we're on our fourth or fifth intake of graduates now and we sponsor internships and uh, years years out in industry and and uh, it's all good. You know, we just, I think we can give people a great experience. They add a lot of value. They enjoy coming here. And yes, they're choosing to come here above some of the more established schemes in the bigger companies. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, again, I find that it's a huge privilege and I'm very proud that they've made that decision. I want to look after them and make sure they get the best possible experience and can really you know, achieve their goals and ambitions. And you, you know, obviously your background is Rolls-Royce, yes. uh, looking after the civil engines, future future technology there. How, how does reactions engines differ? You said you've got a, kind of a, a younger, yeah. a younger, more diverse workforce. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think compared to maybe that my predecessor, that would be true. I'm sure it's changed over the years. They've certainly gone through a few iterations since I left. But yeah, I mean, my time in Rolls Royce was incredible. I, mean, I was a career, really a career chief engineer on most of the Rolls Royce's military engines and then civil uh, engines, technology, future programs. And I learned a huge amount and had some you know, incredible experiences and uh, you know, working with air forces and airlines you know, all over the world from the US right through to Australia. Um, but I saw some, again, some super smart people that could work brilliantly in teams and would always step up over and over again to respond to a challenge. And I see many of those aspects here as well. I've obviously acquired a few Rolls Royce people. They've chosen chosen to come and do this on on leaving Rolls Royce, which is great because they bring bring a, a a rare type of expertise. I would say, and certainly in the UK. Um, but yeah, I see synergies and similarities between the businesses. But I think you know, what we've tried to do here in Reaction Engines is keep moving with real pace and ambition and uh, you know, uh, lean up everything that we do. Uh, I give people really big amounts of accountability. My, my engineering director, Philippa, is is still a relatively early career, but she's leading half of the organization and a really inspirational in the t- terms of the way she she does um, uh, take the engineers into battle and get them to do amazing things. Wow, great. Um, what do you see then as the, as the biggest challenges for reaction engines going forward? I mean, is it is it that valley of death from tech demonstrator to productionized manufacturing and a, a final product? Yeah, so so it, 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 that's probably where we are, and I think this, we're in that scale up phase, and we're trying to traverse that valley. Historically, it's been it's been money raising, you know, having to continually on an almost annual basis raise money for the business to fund the projects and the demonstrations and the trials. Uh, that's becoming less less of a uh, a concern, but now it's it's shifted more into we need to penetrate the markets generate revenue be able to pour that back into the business to be self-sufficient uh, so i think for me the, the 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 biggest challenge at the moment is about market entry you know which markets just because we 
can do everything yeah. we shouldn't try try and do everything so what are the right strategic opportunities for us how are we going to nail those independently through partnership what's a, a good first adopter of the technology and and how do we grow from there so so yeah, it's a growth it's a growth challenge but it's really exciting i've got a new cfo relatively new been in the business four months and he's got a growth mindset so that's an exciting cfo to have in the business at this point in time so Brilliant. Okay, yeah. so I mean, we're coming up to the end, end of the, the, uh, the you know the time with you now. But so we'd just like to get to end on on a, maybe a couple of personal questions of um, you know what inspired you into into aerospace and also um, what's your favourite a- aircraft or engine? In fact, and obviously XB seventy. <laughs> I noticed the Mustang is on. There's a yes. there's a yes. You can see a P fifty one Mustang. Yeah, P fifty one. So I don't know whether yeah. there's a clue. Yeah. What get, what, what yeah. got you into aerospace in the first place? Uh, well, very briefly, I, I come from an RAF family, so my father or my uncles were in the RAF, so it was, it was pretty much uh, written into the script that I was going to join the Air Force, and, and that's the journey I embarked on. I grew up near, near an RAF base, so I was always playing to the sounds of jet engines and watching these incredible aircraft coming over and uh, uh, breaking through the barriers whenever I could to get close to them. But uh, uh, coupled with the fact, you know, briefly, I lived in a part of Wales, uh, which was coincident with where Concorde crossed the coast to go uh-huh. supersonic. So you could look up in the sky, I think it was you know, 10 to 11 in the morning, and you see this iconic shape just about to make its supersonic transition. And it was, so th- so those were inspirational kind of childhood memories. Um, I couldn't, I wasn't able to become a fast jet pilot, um, eyesight related, unfortunately, and I wasn't enjoying being in the back seat. So, so I, I jumped into industry and decided I'd get as close as possible to those guys from the industry side. And that was that exactly what I did for 25 years in Rolls Royce. And it was, uh, you know, an amazing experience, particularly on the Typhoon program, which I saw from really beginning conception right, right through to service and support. Um, so that was my inspiration. Aircraft wise, you know, lots I could pick. The P 51 story for me is interesting because this. My my guy who runs my US business, Adam, has the same picture in his office. And what our, our, basically our story there is, you know, this was a decent airframe, um, a decent aircraft, but it became an exceptional aircraft when we put a British British engine in it. So, brilliant. So, so, transatlantic cooperation. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Fantastic. Well, look, uh, Mark, this is an absolutely uh, fantastic uh, speaking to you. Uh, just a really, really brilliant interview and, and, and chance to chat, catch up with you. Where can we find Reaction Engines? How do we keep, keep up with you? Uh, where are you online? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so we're pretty, pretty, pretty out there in terms of social media. So I think social media is probably the first port to call in terms of LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. You know, check out the website. You'll see the different aspects of the business, and we'll go through a refresh on that. But we're at most of the major conferences, so particularly the air shows, space symposium in Colorado yeah. next next week. So yeah, do do stop by, say hi to the team, and uh, and if you're tracking through. Oxfordshire, then then you, you'll be very close to our headquarters. And we'd love to, love to have you visit. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Mark, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, we'd like to thank White Hearts as well as the wider extended family of supporters, including Mick Oakey at the Aviation Historian and Simon Jakubowski at the Aviation Enthusiasts Book Club. Um, but Tim, let's not forget, where can we find you online? Okay, so I'm Arias at Arias Timar on Twitter for my sins, and you can uh, you can find the Royal Aeronautical, 
Aeronautical Society at www.aerosociety.com. Excellent. You can find me at Mascot Hornet on Twitter and you can find Gareth and Ellie on the extended Twitter, Facebook and Instagram feeds. Do check in with us, though, or leave us a review on your podcast playing app. We're on all of the top podcast playing apps and we'll always respond. If not, drop us an email. Tell us what you think about this episode and the program in general. You can support us through our donations link on the web page. And we're extremely grateful for all of the donations we've received this year. All go directly to fund our web, internet and hosting costs. But that's it with the arrival of the music. It's goodbye from Mark. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from Tim. Goodbye all, see you next time. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Johnson. Remember, stay tuned to this frequency. That is, of course, Aerospace Radio Station Extended. legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program and leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you... The Royal Aeronautical Society is the world's only professional body dedicated to the entire aerospace community. Established in 1866 to further the art, science and engineering of aeronautics, the Society has remained at the forefront of developments in aerospace. Visit www.aerosociety.com Extend it! This is XTP Media.